0: And uh, so I'm lying there and I'm completely conscious. And uh, I can see this doctor going through my jacket with a, a big industrial scissors, like a, a hot blade like a hot blade through bar. He's like into a brown or black bag and I was like, it just like that jacket, it meant so much to me.
1: Welcome to the Social Fabric Podcast with me, Andrea Splendori, and this week I will bring you the live recording from the show I did in the Well Theatre in Greystones on the 27th of April, 23. My guests were Paddy Slattery and Richelle Timothy, and the show was called Against All Odds. The aim of the show was to reframe the way we talk and look at disability. This is part one of two. For more information and more episodes, please visit socialfabric.ie. Please subscribe, share and review. It would be really appreciated. The title tune is Happy and Shining by Dorenda Us. Hello, good evening. Um, hello, good evening, and welcome to the wonderful Stones Whale Theatre. And thanks, thanks a million for being here. Uh, my name is Andrea Splendori, i the the host of the Social Fabric podcast. And first of all, thanks a lot for being here. It's not um, it's not easy to get people out these days, and I really appreciate it. And thanks Aminia, as always, to the staff here. They're just wonderful. And to Ross and Brian for allowing me to do this. A few years ago, um, for the last few years, I should say, I had the privilege to spend some uh, time with a good friend of mine, Galen, and, and do some interesting things. Some, uh, we shared some experiences. So we did the Rome Marathon. I know you sound surprised I did the Rome Marathon. And we did the, the Copenhagen Marathon together. We also went across Ireland with a group of friends, some of them are here tonight, first on the Grand Canal and then on the Royal Canal, from here all the way to the west. And then last year I was in Berlin when he did his personal best at the Berlin Marathon. So it's been great. Uh, Galen is on a wheelchair, following a horrific uh, freak accent, I suppose you can call it, while he was training for his um, Ironman. But uh, spending time with Galen over the last uh, few years has told me a few things about disability. And it's opened my eyes to a lot of things. For example, when you go to the bar, don't sit at the high stool. It's just just not cool enough. He, does, you know, he won't buy you a beer if you're sitting at the high stool. <laughs> or if you text him and go, Galen, would you fancy a walk? And he goes, I can't walk. So all these things. <laughs> but aside from the jokes, uh, what has really opened my eyes to is uh, the power of motivation, of determination, and positive thinking. And then we thought, wouldn't it be great to have a couple of people to talk about this on a night in this wonderful place? So we find these amazing people that are doing wonderful things and achieving some of the spectacular things, in, as you've seen in sport and movies, and uh, doing all of that against all odds. So we said, Would you mind come over? And they did, and I'm gonna introduce you to them in a minute. But I think the important thing in having them telling their story tonight is perhaps it'll give us a different perspective, a different perhaps we can reframe what disability is all about. Perhaps. Or perhaps we learn something about ourselves and what we can use from their story. But before I bring you these two wonderful people, I'm gonna bring you one wonderful person, and that's Galen English himself. And you have no idea how hard this was to get him on stage, but uh, my job is done. The rest will be the cream on top. Galen, thanks a million for being here.
2: Thanks for having me, Andrea. And uh, thanks a million for organizing tonight. Um, I wanted to just quickly say thank you to everybody for coming. Um, It's really a great opportunity for, um, just as Andrea said, to reframe how you look at disability um, originally when we talked about this, you wanted a, we'd been in Rome and you wanted to talk about all the difficulties we'd had getting over steps and on paths and that sort of thing, but I've been 10 years in a chair and I've, I've been around people that a step or a curb doesn't stop them doing anything and I thought it's much better to tell that story don't look at disability as a negative, look at the possibilities. And through that, you will be able to find uh, sort of lessons in how to live your life. The disabled people I know, the way they live their life, if you could sort of bottle 10% of what they do, it would transform the way you view the world. And that's sort of what tonight is about. You've got Paddy who has directed um, critically acclaimed movie that was picked up by Netflix and one of the key things like Paddy did was he didn't advertise the fact that he was in a wheelchair and that movie on its own merits was um, got amazing reviews. So Paddy has managed to do that without, you know, something that most people don't even get close to doing. So I just thought it would be important to Hear, hear their story and hear how they get on. And you've got Rochelle, who I, you really got to get into what she does. She's effectively a professional athlete, travels around Europe, trains 24-7, diet. She has drug testers coming to our house. Like, and she does all of that after um, the challenge, challenges she's faced. So that's what tonight is about. It's about looking at disability in a different way and understanding that a huge part of the battle is your mental attitude and, and your approach to it. And if you have your mental attitude and your approach to it right, you will succeed. So thank you again, everybody, and enjoy the night. <clears throat> uh,
1: thank you. Uh, it was a negotiation going on for the last six months about this, and eventually he rang me this afternoon and says, all right, I can go on stage before anything happens. I said, seriously, I didn't want you at this stage. But anyway, <laughs> uh, I'm standing up because I want to bring on stage the two wonderful people that made their way across Ireland, this time in, in the car, and that's Richelle, Timothy, and Paddy Slattery. Thank you. Richelle, you take the seat. There you go Paddy. Right.
0: I thought you were just standing up to show off.
1: <laughs> and I want to make sure that Richelle took the seat. I want to make sure she wasn't going to stand. Um, so, uh, this is Paddy and that's Rochelle. Now Paddy, get yourself comfortable because I'm going to start with Richelle anyway because I'm a gentleman. So, um, thanks Amelia, for making the trip across Ireland. Is that microphone close enough to you? Let's see if we can hear you. No, we can't hear. We have to put it up a bit. Um, thanks, Emilia, for making the trip across. Um, Richelle, uh, Mom, is here in the audience. Rosalind, she came across the country to be here, so thanks a lot. And um, Galen suggested we should have subtitles because the Greystonians people won't understand you, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll try with that. So, Richelle, welcome. Um, let's start with your name. Where's that come from? That's the first time I met a, a Richelle.
3: Yeah, so it's Rochelle. It's most uh, have come from an Irish book of like Irish names. But I don't know. I haven't heard of any other one, so <laughs> <laughs> maybe not. But we'll, that's the way we say it anyway. So.
1: And uh, wh- where are you from and all that? I'll get Paul now to, to lift the, 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 the microphone a little bit. Um, wh- where are you from And outside of Greystones? Tell these people where you're from so they, they so know.
3: So I live in County Galway. Most people think I'm from Roscommon, but I actually live on the border, the, the Galway side. But I suppose sports-wise, I played at Roscommon Roscommon on the Roscommon
1: side, so I do say to people, go where Roscommon?" dependent on what I want or who I'm talking to, sort of thing. Yeah, that's they they won't get that
3: here,
1: so uh, <laughs> <laughs> don't worry about it. We 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 need to explain where Roscommon is, but we'll do that. We'll we'll do a separate show on the geography of of Ireland outside of Grinsteads. Uh, but before we get to the GA, we will get to that. I really want to know a bit more about uh, the village. But let me ask Paddy while we get your, uh, your microphone sorted. Paddy, where are you from?
0: I'm not from Roscommon. <laughs> I'm a little... I, don't, I, I had to ask you earlier. I was like, where is
1: Roscommon?
0: <laughs> and I'm good at geography. <laughs> I'm from Offaly.
1: Offaly? Offaly, yeah. That's terrible. Ofalia. And um, terrible. <laughs> That's terrible. Well, look...
0: So, <laughs> if anyone needs sign language, just n- nod up. To
1: us. And what about in Offaly? Tell, tell us a bit about the village or the, the town. The, where, where did you grow up? I have no idea where you grew up.
0: I grew up in a beautiful little village called Clonbulog in Offaly.
1: Okay, tell and us a bit about it.
0: Uh, it's just like an average little village in Ireland. It's um, sort of like the west of Ireland. It's stuck in in limbo. You know, it doesn't move with the times. And I love it because you know there's no light pollution, and uh, you can bring your dogs for the walk or the wheel or whatever. And uh, you know you're not invaded unless, like work-wise, like most of my work would be Dublin-bound, you know, um, or during COVID it's all remote. But uh, I love the fact that I can kind of unplug when I go back to Clumbalogue. Like I love uh, rural Ireland, and I love the countryside. And uh, the woods and the rivers, and that's like that's Clumblog to a T. It's like a, it was void, I don't know how many times, it was the tidiest village mm-hmm. in Ireland, but it's just a picturesque little postcard village, full of its trauma, I'm sure. But uh, it's a nice <laughs> little village,
1: <laughs> wonderful. Let me go back to Rachel. I'll come back to you, as a, you. You told a couple of stories when we were having a, a bit of food earlier, and I'd like to know some of them. Some of them you can <laughs> repeat. Uh, but Richelle, what about you, uh, tell us about your town a bit and what was it like growing up there? Talking about you when you were a little one before yeah, you so started GIA and all that.
3: I'm from a, a tiny little village. Basically, just had like three pubs, a <laughs> shop. That was it. So way out in the countryside, like farms around us, that sort of thing. So yeah, it's it's kind of where I suppose I want to live as well. I I like being out in the countryside. I wouldn't like to be in a city like. Um, so yeah, it was just. Usual, like you knew everyone, know all your neighbours, know everyone around you. Went to a small school, small secondary school, and most people are still there, like so. Yeah.
1: And, and do you still like it?
3: Yeah, do yeah. I have a house there now, so I can have to. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. <laughs>
1: okay. And what's what's the, your fondest memory growing up uh, as a kid there? What was the fun? You have two brothers, right?
3: Yeah, two brothers. Yeah, so I suppose for us, it's going to be all like sport. We were always mad into sport, like down to the soccer pitch, down to the Gaelic pitch all that sort of stuff and cycling as well I used to we used to back in the old days I suppose you'd ring a house phone to contact your friends or whatever so I used to ring my best friend's house phone I would know her number off by heart. and we used to both say right leave the house now and I'll meet you halfway so cycle the bikes meet halfway and then decide are we going to your house or are we going to my house so it was always always outdoors like never really in watching the telly or any of that unless it was raining out and there was one of two things on the telly then during the summer either Wimbledon or the Tour de France, just because you put on T G like, turn it down and just talk over it basically. So yeah, (laughs) that's what I revolve around.
1: Uh, And where does all the love for sports come from, for all of you, Where, where does it come from?
3: I think just my parents obviously wanted us doing as much activities as we could when we were younger, get us outside, and I think from when we were, my brother was probably four or five, he was just kicking a football, so then I wanted to be as good as him, so I started kicking a football and then my friends were doing like dancing, so I wanted to do dancing and like it was a small small village but it had all them sort of things like handball, Gaelic, soccer, um, Irish dancing, Anthony you want to do, you done and I just hate sitting still I hate sitting still, hated like being inside, doing nothing I need to get out. And I suppose for my parents it was probably like get her out so she blows some energy and then get home like. <laughs> so yeah, that was just it and trying to keep up with my older brother, yeah, was the main thing. So if he did something it was always, there was no girls teams or anything around me, so if I wanted to play, I went with the lads. But uh, I think as I got older and as I got better, they wanted me to play as well, so I'd always be like, yeah, I'm as good as you, so I'm just going to follow you around for the day, basically. So, yeah, it was just, it wasn't like my parents were, would have been sporty, but it wasn't that I come from a, you know, prodigy family at here of their parents were runners and their, their mother was a runner and their dad was a hurler or whatever. It was just that we love sport and everyone around us loves So
1: Wonderful. Yep. Thank you. And um, Paddy, what about you? Were you into sports as a kid?
0: Yeah, I used to box. I used to, uh, like, any sports I was involved in, it was an excuse to get out and hang out with the lads and chase the women. So, uh, like, boxing was handy for that. I used to do choir practice, because, uh, you know, all the girls go to choir practice. You know? <laughs> so, uh, and I could I could sing. I could hold a note, so it was handy enough. But I love the <laughs> fact that... Um, Like you're probably a bit young, but uh, I was a child of the 80s, you know, before mobile phones. So you have a a sample of a real childhood outdoors getting dirty. And then uh, phones and computers and internet came in in the early 2000s. And so you've got this sort of lovely, healthy mix of, uh, well, I don't know if it's healthy, but uh, at least we can look back at our childhoods and say, actually, it was a decent enough childhood. Because like yourself, I love being like, with the lads outdoors, playing soccer or playing football or boxing or that. And nowadays, I don't think I'd like to be a child nowadays, locked in playing a computer game. You know, it's a simulation of life, and it's not healthy for the heart or the body, you know?
1: I love the way you two young people say it nowadays, you know, you yeah. make me feel yeah. 400 years old. But anyway, that's okay, we'll skip that over. You were t- but you love the town, you love the village and all that. However, you decided to go off to, to London, right? At one point, you were only.
0: Yeah, I was only a wee lad. I was like, uh, I think, I, yeah, I was 14 going on 15 when I moved to London and I'd done a bit of work on the buildings. And I was sending all the well, most of my money home to my ma, because she was a single parent at the time, raising seven of us, at the time. So, uh, like, I liked, like, I always referred to that time in London, as like I never forget getting up early in the morning, that work ethic, and it never left me. But uh, I did, I missed my ma's cooking. I missed like there was no internet, so there was this girl I fancied and. You know, when you go to England, it's like fucking going to Mars. <laughs> you know, you can't, it's not like you can keep up with people, you know. So you go to London, like, you might never see them again, you know. Nowadays, it's uh, it's all, you know, online. But uh, I, I did enjoy it, but it was hard work.
1: At 14, it, it, you got on the plane on your own and you went off.
0: Well, I was kind of drunk. <laughs> yeah, we had, a, we had a going away session. And I was that drunk. I went to my bed. And I woke up in Gatwick Airport (laughs) in my sister's house. I was like, where did the last two days go? So apparently, I staggered. Apparently, uh, one of the lads that gave me a lift to the airport, I was hanging out there all getting sick. I somehow staggered onto the plane. And uh, my sister picked me up in the airport and brought me, carried me back to her house. So yeah, it was was colorful. But uh, (laughs) I have to admit, I... Like, like I love, I appreciate the city life, but uh, it wasn't for me. Like, especially in, I was living in uh, North London, so it, there's all this eclectic smells and diversity and all that. All these cultures, it's a sort of a hub of all these cultures, and there's always something to do. Well, not as a kid, but um, but I just missed the old homeland, you know. And mm-hmm. I was listening to the Furies and Christy Moore. I was like, ah, oh, fuck that, I'm over here. <laughs> I was on, actually, Good Money. And I abandoned the Good Money. And I came back and went on fast.
1: So you can, Foss blame Foss Christy, you can blame Christy Moore.
0: No, the Furies. That, that, <laughs> that romantic Ireland, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was back in the Walkman days, you know, when the batteries were going flat. And suddenly, the songs are slower and, <laughs> and more emotional. So you hear the green fields of France and you're crying your eyes out.
4: You're thinking, <laughs> oh, jeez, I want to go home. <laughs> <Yeah. Well>, so,
1: <laughs> so, Richard, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned your competitive streak with your brothers hmm. and everybody else in the village, basically, you had to win, right? You had to beat everybody, pretty much. And what did you get into then? You got into GA. That was the best thing. You, well, yeah. tell us a bit about the, the sport, because that's been the big thing for you.
3: Yeah, I suppose from when I was maybe under eight, I played... Gaelic football with my local club, which was half parish, Galway and Roscommon. And then I played soccer, the local soccer team. But as I said, like you played with the lads or you didn't play at all. So I just kept playing with the lads, kept playing with the lads. And then um, I suppose when you got up to like under 14, I was still playing with the boys. There was no girls' team. You got to under 16, I remember like Roscommon brought in this rule that the girls weren't allowed to play with the lads. So they wanted me to play with them, so they just kind of put me in the corner and be like, don't talk, just like, <laughs> kick the ball and say nothing, like, so, yeah, I just, I just love sport, I love going out, like, I remember the side of our house, there was one window, small window, so you go out and kick the ball against the wall a hundred times and catch you, and do not hit the window, like, was basically the goal, so as I got better and better, I used to put marks on the wall, like, and you're hitting that mark constantly, constantly, <laughs> I think that was just my competitive thing, and always wanting to if I'd done something, I'd put 100% into it. Like, so if I wanted to play soccer and I wanted to be on the best team, I had to train the best. Like, and that was even from 12, 14 up. So that's when I kind of got into the soccer properly. Mm-hmm. I remember I used to go to, to Castle Castlebar. It was the nearest women's team, the only women's team in Connacht. And I just go there every Saturday morning, get up, do the training, come home, and then like do whatever I need to do during the week to get back over there again. But I think that comes from obviously having the support of the support around you. Like my parents were driving me everywhere. And I didn't have to, like, think about eating, cooking, any of that sort of stuff. Like, I think, as I, when I went to college, I kind of realised, oh, crap, like, I'm not getting driven so I can't sleep in the car. Like, I can't... The food isn't just there right beside me, like, and that sort of thing. So, so that is what, obviously, you grow into. But, yeah, it was definitely... It was always sport, no matter what. Like, you get... In primary school, you fill in different booklets, what you want to be when you grow up, and it was, like, professional soccer player. A uh, second option was, like a coach, third option then was actually, like, a cyclist or whatever, and then went to secondary school, filled in, like, the DATs, they used to call it, which, you know, might put you in a career. And, like, I was just, no, 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 no to everything, like. (laughs) And there was one that might be sport, and I'd be just like, yep, take that, like. And it literally was giving me no results, like. So, yeah, it was always going to be sport. You know, if someone told me, read a book, you have to read a book, I'd be like, okay, go into the bookshop, get an autobiography of some footballer, like, and read that. So that was... That was just the way it was, and that was just how much I w- was interested in sport. Like, yeah.
1: But you got a quite high level in both GAA and soccer, right? Pretty much at the same time. Were you playing it both yeah. at the same time?
3: So I played uh, county football at Ruscommon up until, up until senior level, and I played with Ireland underage for soccer, under-15s, under-17s. So yeah, I was, kinda, I was juggling both, but the way they used to do it when you were underage was Wednesdays and Fridays were Gaelic in Ruscommon, and then the Tuesdays and Thursdays were soccer, so it didn't start to clash until I probably was on the Irish team. And then, like, really it was you decide you're either going to put soccer first or you're going to play Gaelic. But I think with me and Roscommon, they used to allow me to go to the soccer um, once I was there for the matches of the Gaelic. But I think there's a few girls now from where I live that are in a similar situation where they're, they're good enough to be on the Ireland soccer team and they're good enough to be on the county team. But because everything's put up on, like, Facebook... Like, my trainers used to know if I was at soccer, because i just <laughs> say, sorry, I'm sick today, like, I'll, I'll see you Monday, like. But if you're going to get your face stuck up somewhere, you're going to be caught, like, so. But, yeah, I never, I think I just, I love the Gaelic, because it was all my friends I grew up with. Um, but I love the soccer, because there was that idea that you could be professional, and you could go to England, and you could play with, like, these big clubs. Um, but I always kind of fell back to the Gaelic, as I said, like, it was the girls you grew up with, the girls that I'm still best of friends with. Whereas in soccer, because it, you're paid to play with different teams, it was always that turnover of, of different people every year. But yeah, I played a, at the highest level I suppose I could for that age. And then, yeah, we'll probably get to the next part. Of
1: yeah, and then uh, the, sh- the show's over. That's, yeah. you know, that's, <laughs> that's what we it. wanted Good. to know. No, but that, and yeah, so you answered my question. You would have gone either way, just the friends on one side, the, the, yeah. the professional on the other. But... We don't know why yeah. you would. You you used to play with McCabe, is right. Um, yeah, McCabe, Case McCabe, McCabe was. Yeah, so that was the, my the, age group, the yeah. standard. Yeah, that's yeah. brilliant. Um, so Paddy, um, looks like you're on a wheelchair. Is that right? Uh, what happened?
0: Uh, uh, what happened? Uh, yeah. I was born this way.
1: <laughs> I, don't
0: know. Uh, I was in a car crash. Um, it's kind of ironic because. Like, I was in a car crash and I broke my neck. And weirdly enough, when I look back on that experience, I could remember the jacket I put on that morning. It was my Sunday jacket, my good jacket, my, if I can say, my pimping jacket. It, it looked so good. <laughs> and uh, so, all that day in, in work, I was protecting the jacket because I was doing painting and decorating in the housing estate. And there's this habit where the lads. If you bring out a new in to work, the lads will throw paint on it for the crack. <laughs> yes. So I was protecting the jacket. So the jacket was in one piece when I got out of there. So when I was in the car crash and uh, there was an emergency surgery, I was rushed to Tullmore Hospital and uh, I'm lying on this uh, splint or plinth or whatever. And uh, they've done this uh, what you call it, traction surgery on me. And uh, so I'm lying there and I'm completely conscious. And uh, I can see this doctor going through my jacket with a, a big industrial scissors, like a, a, hot, burr through, like a hot blade through a bar. He's like zzz, into a brown or black bag. And I was like, it just, like that jacket, it meant so much to me. <laughs> and metaphorically, when he cut that jacket in half, I was like, okay, there's no going back from this. So it was like, I was heartbroken for that jacket.
1: What color was it? Black.
0: And I had a, a lovely zip, right? And it, it was a slimming jacket. It kind of made me look slimmer. <laughs> and I had a, a little bit of leather on the zip. And when I'm cold, I'd, you know I would chew on the leather. <laughs> oh, I love that jacket. God knows whatever happened to it.
1: How, how old were you?
0: I was 17 at the time, oh. yeah. Wow.
1: Um, were you driving?
0: I wasn't. Would you believe I was actually coming left lift home from work. And um, like, there was myself and two friends. And we got out of the work van in Eden Derry. And uh, my, like the village where I live, it's about seven miles. And I've thumbed that road from Eden Derry to Clumblog millions of times. And usually you'd end up walking and you'd never get a lift. But as soon as we jumped out of the van, the three of us, this car pulled up and said, uh, He's going, do you want a lift? And I was like, Happy days. Like the odds on this for three of us. And this car pulled in. And I was the youngest out of the lads. So I'm thinking in my head, it's a bit rude, you know, to jump up into the passenger seat. But I was that hungry and, you know, I was anxious to get home. I jumped into the passenger seat and honest to God, I, I remember very clearly seeing the driver was he was a young enough driver. And I didn't want to put on the seatbelt. Because I didn't want this guy to think that I didn't trust his driving. And this was back before, you know, wearing seatbelts was criminalized. And um I mean, 500 meters out the road. Actually, before we came to the crash, we actually passed this lad, and I knew this lad, an absolute gobshite. We passed him on the road, and the driver said to me, do you know this lad? I'll stop for him. And I said, "Uh, I don't know who he is. And I remember in slow motion just giving him a wink, saying, I'll see you back in the village, Yeah, fucking gobshite. (laughs) Literally 500 meters out the road, we were in this car crash, and I'm lying out on the road, and this lad comes and looks down at me. And says, uh, "Are you all right there, Paddy?" And I'm like thinking, "Why the fuck didn't we stop you?" <laughs> That's all I could think about. It's yeah. like if I had, if I had the manners to say, "Yeah, I knew who this lad was," who knows? But
1: uh, yeah. wow. <laughs> and uh, tell me a little bit more. I mean, wh- wh- what happened? I mean, okay, you had a massive crash. You were wearing a seat seatbelt. Mm. You say you you you're looking up. Could you move? What happened there? What happened? What, it was, what ki- was it?
0: It was kind of strange because I broke my neck, right? But I remember, like, I knew the, the crash was going to happen because uh, I could see there was a van and tractor ahead of me. And of course, the driver decided to try and overtake the van. And as we were overtaking the van, the van pulled out to overtake the tractor. This happens in the country. You know, tractors are parked everywhere. <laughs> And suddenly we're heading for a ditch. And I know there's no way on earth this lad is going to make it unless he pulls back in. And of course, his foot went down on the throttle. And I was like, oh, he's going to try and make it. And I just remember I'm not even that religious, but I remember crossing my hands across my chest. And I I said, um, well, okay, I'm in God's hands now. And I remember closing my eyes and and clinching. And the weird thing is, like I had broken my neck and I'd uh, dislocated my shoulder. But the weird thing is, the first time I knew I was paralyzed, I was lying in the bottom of the car, in the bottom of the ditch, and my head was resting on the brake pedal. The driver was on me, and I could see two feet over here wearing uh, black spalding runners. And I was thinking to myself, because I could feel my body behind me, and I could see these spalding runners. And I was thinking, "Geez, the lads don't have runners like mine. And then I followed with my eyes along the shoes and along the Legs and I was like, oh fuck, my body's up here, and I was thinking, okay. And I went to shout for help, and when I shouted for help, I went, huh! and and my like my I my diaphragm collapsed, and I couldn't really speak. So I was like, I was trying to shout for help, and all I could do was, help, 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 help. and I, I literally thought I, that was it, curtains. And I could hear the engine running. I could smell the petrol. I was thinking, oh, it's lights out here, and the lads pulled me out and. uh yeah, so I was lucky to survive it, and I say I say it kind of jokingly, but I kind of mean it. Um, like people wonder, like why do I have a smile on my face? Why do I feel so lucky to be alive? And I always put it down to that moment where, um, like I say, I suffer from second chance syndrome. <laughs> but I do feel like that moment I could have easily died, but I somehow survived it, and I was offered this second chance. And I was thinking, you know. Second chance. I might as well make the most of it. See what I can do with it, you know? Mm,
1: wonderful. Well done. Thanks a million. Uh, Richelle, listen to, to Paddy. Different, uh, different story. But you had a moment where <coughs> all of this, the football, the guy, what do I do? Will I do this? Will I do that? And all of a sudden, the curtain, as Paddy calls it, came down on you. Yes, uh, I
3: suppose uh, <coughs> my story probably isn't as, it doesn't sound as. You know. But he's
1: a filmmaker, he can make yeah, it up.
3: Yeah.
1: I, I
0: embellished it. It wasn't <laughs> as sexy as the way I made it sound. It was actually horrific. I nearly died. It was horrible. That's fair, yeah, it's, yeah.
1: Not, it's not the time for the card yet. The, the inspiration Oh, it was blood was, and guts and everything was That's later. <laughs> that's after in the second half.
0: Yeah,
3: the car was a write-off. <laughs> so yeah, I suppose mine is a bit of a different story. Um, I was 21. That's the simple side of it. Um, and I remember just waking up. Let's say one Monday morning, and my legs, my right leg was really heavy or whatever, and I was walking upstairs, and I kept hitting my foot off the step, and I was thinking, "Oh, I probably done too much in the gym this week or whatever," and I kind of let it go. The following few days, then I was getting like constant headaches, constant headaches, and I was like, "Oh, I'll go to the doctor." Doctor, just migraine. So it'd be bad in the morning, it'd be all right during the day, and then bad again in the evening. And I remember going to uh, a county training session down home, like where I went from college, and um. We were running out and around the cones, and I could go to my left perfect, but when I tried to go to my right, I was unbalanced-like. So I just said to the, the girl that was there, you know, I'm going to take it easy, I have a bit of a headache or whatever, and she said, grand. So I went back to the, every time I got back to college, it was out of hours, so you were going to like the out of hours doctor and that. And it was just, again, treat me for migraine. Following day then, again, my foot was a bit off. I was like, yeah, there's something, something maybe not right. Went to my local doctors, they were like, yeah, it's migraine, like all the symptoms are migraine. And then this was a week. So the following Monday, then I just woke up in the middle of the night, and I couldn't couldn't move my right side. My face had drooped. Um, I wasn't able to talk. Like it was, it looked like I was having a stroke. So I went straight to hospital. By the time I got there, you know, I went into A and E. They were like looking at me. They're like, "Yeah, it looks like you've had a stroke or whatever." Done the scan, and basically the scan showed like a an apple sized swelling on my brain on the left side, and it had just been caused by the year previously, I'd have got a laser. A laser treatment on an AVM. So, like, obviously, a lot of people now get like laser eye and all that sort of thing. So, it was just something like that, a simple day procedure. But what happened was that the area that had been hit by the laser had reacted, had a bad reaction to it. And it just got like the swelling got bigger and bigger and bigger over time. And that was what was causing the headaches. But at the time, I didn't realize. So, yeah, they'd done the MRI and they just said basically put me in a neck brace, said, you know, we need to get this swelling down because. The more it swells, the more it will damage other parts of your body or whatever. So it was my lower left side, which affects the the right side of my body. So at that time, all that I really had was a limp. I wasn't able to lift my foot up. And then they went and tested my my hand as well. And that was just as bad, if not worse. But I was always left-handed. So I hadn't really noticed anything. I noticed I dropped a few. Like, I dropped a cup and I dropped a plate. We'll say two days previous in the in the college house. But I thought I was just being clumsy-like. So, yeah, I was in a hospital then for about... 10 days and it was just they were just trying to get the swelling down trying to get the swelling down and I remember I was probably so naive that I thought it was like a broken ankle I was like um get the swelling down I'll go back to normal uh, little did I know like with the brain if you have brain damage that it doesn't regenerate itself the cells won't come back so whatever damage was done was done forever but again at the time I everything the doctors told me I believed so do you know in 3 months it'll be better in 6 months it'll be better and this went on for about 18 months so I remember I was actually supposed to have, like, a, a club county final. The following weekend, I remember saying to the doctor, like, how long will I be in hospital? And they were like, a week. And I was like, grand, so I'll be out for next weekend. Like, They were like, yeah. Like, And I was thinking, I'll play the match. Um, but the more I said it, the more they were like, oh, I don't think so. And I think the first time I kind of realized how bad it was, was they brought me down to, like, the physio. So they were wheeling me down. And I was always like, just let me walk, like, mm-hmm. whatever. Brought me down to the physio. I walked in. It was an older physio. And she was just, like, the way I suppose you have to be, like, blunt. So I walked in young and she was like, oh, whatever. And I was like, grand, put me on the two, like the standing rails and said, when did you have the stroke? And I was like, I didn't have a stroke. Like in my head, I just had a bit of swelling like. And she was like, yeah, you had a stroke. Now you make it out of your head that you're ever gonna, that you're gonna be home, that you're gonna be doing this. This is rehab from now like. So I think I went home then and I just, I thought I was getting better, but I think it was more in my head. Like, so my walk was still really bad, but I was braced up and... Like my, my hand was bad, but again, I was left-handed. So every time they'd ask, how's your hand, I'd be like, not too bad. But again, that was me trying to be the positive person and think, yeah, it's going to be fine. Um, so yeah, I think I had so much muscle bent up from my plane that the muscle memory was still there. But about six months later, all muscle wasted, the muscle had wasted away. Like, and then my walk had got worse as opposed to getting worse at the time. So yeah, it was about um, 18 months of like rehab, learning to, to walk properly. My speech came back almost straight away. Like be, if I get, even now, like if I get really fatigued with the brain injury or tired, your speech starts to go. So if I'm out with my friends or I'm doing something or I'm training and I suddenly stop talking, like they're like, yeah, cut now, like because you're going to overdo it kind of. So yeah, um, over the 18 months I had like chemo, different types of um, radiation, things like that, just to try and get rid of the swelling. So they redone a scan about 12 months later, and there was no, no swelling, only a small little dot, and I was like, okay, but why am I better? Like, So I remember all the doctors would be like, you will be, you will be, you will be, and I went to this conference in Croatia, because I, I was doing sports science in college, so I was scientifically, give me facts, like, don't give me a mite, I want something written that tells me this is going to happen. So I went to Croatia, and I remember I walked up, walked by one of the main doctors, and he just said, you had that laser treatment. He was able to spot it like, he said, I've seen three people with the same side effects. And he goes, I have one one tip for you, something you should take home with you. And I was like, yeah, whatever, thinking he was going to give me like a cure. And he was like, forget about what you wear. This is your new beginning. You need to go with what you have from now. And I went home then, and I think that was it. I forgot about, didn't forget about, but I realized, all right, I'm not going to go back and play football. I'm going to do something else. And that's kind of when I found the bike. And yeah, it's all escalated since then.
1: Wow. You know what's fascinating? Listening to both of you—it's just <coughs> the matter of fact. You know that's it. That's what you get gotta do. You gotta do it. You know, listening to you, twenty-one, mm-hmm. eighteen months—you're still only twenty-two and a bit. And mm-hmm. it's just life has changed. That's it. Forget about everything else. But you're still talking about it in a, such an amazing matter of fact. And you, the same—you're talking about, about mm-hmm. you know, that accent. But. What I'm really curious about, and I was, t- I was telling your mum upstairs, we were upstairs talking, what I'm actually curious about as well as the obvious change that has happened for you guys. What else happened around you? All your friends, your family, what, what happened? How did these things change? Because yeah. there's a big ripple effect, right?
0: Absolutely, yeah. I think um, that was the first thing I noticed. Actually, similar to what you were thinking. I thought I'd be home in two weeks' time playing football with the lads. I thought I'd be on the bench, you know, with an injury, but uh, I thought I'd be playing. (laughs) And then this Dr. McManus, I'll never forget, he came in and said, "Um, You're paralyzed, you'll never walk again, you'll have an operation, and there's a 50 50 chance. And uh, if it's a success, you go to Dunleary for a year. And I'm thinking, What the fuck? You know, like he said it so unapologetically, and then he just disappeared, and I'm there, 17. Staring down the barrel of this reality, and I—I um, I don't know if it's seventy-year-old year brain, but uh, like when he said you're going to Dunleary for a year, I—I I was thinking, right, the nurses better be savage here, because <laughs> like if I'm going to be there for a year, it's—it's going to be a long year, <laughs> and that's all I could think about. But um, <laughs> then the gravity. Oh, Were they? Were they? Were, actually, if if I can <coughs> if I can digress I'm into sure you the can. nurse go, situation, go for it. Right, there was this one nurse, right, called Mary Slarry, and my surname Slarry, Paddy Slarry. So we had this <coughs> invisible connection or bond or whatever. And she was a fine thing, and she was giving me head massages in Everton every night because at that time I couldn't move my arms, so I was completely paralysed, and she was giving me head massages, and I could only drink these uh, swabs swabs of orange. And uh, I could feel in my head. So a head massage was quite you know, vivid. I could feel it. And the curtains were pulled around me. And, and to my left, there was a lad. Uh, imagine like, cartoons. This guy was plaster-parised all over his body. And um, like the story of this guy, he actually fell out of a, a top window in a hotel, drunk as a skunk, and crashed through a reception area. <laughs> It was hilarious, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but he was there, nurse, nurse, and Mary was there. I'm busy, Mark. What's wrong? And she gave me a head massage. <laughs> I'm like, happy days. This is gonna be a, this is gonna be a savage year.
1: So yeah, <laughs> but, but, and and, and that's amazing. <laughs> but, but, but seriously though, and. Uh, you spent a year in Dundee, right that's that's mm. a long time um, and when you go you went back home then you didn't go back to, you went back to your back home then at that stage
0: well the strange thing kind of like what you're saying is that you, your whole social sphere it does change mm. and you like i know you say um i, I know i was only a kid and you, you you find out who your real friends are and <coughs> all that crack but my whole social sphere changed mm. i mean i used to hang out with the lads uh, like and they all disappeared because Just you know, at that age, and we're all at a crossroads, and Mm. there's people going on to school or college and getting jobs and that, and of course I'm paralysed, so I didn't really want to socialise that much, at that time, so uh, you know, like just everything changed around me, and that was hard to come like come to terms with, but like honestly, like coming through that experience. Like I honestly think what kept me sane and what gave me the motivation to keep going was perspective. Cause like on the one hand, you've got this lad telling you you'll never walk again, and from the outside looking in, your family and nurses and everyone they're like, "Oh God, love you. You know you're paralysed and you know that's the end of it." Like, and and inside I'm thinking, actually, you know what? I'm actually feeling all right. Like, like I was smiling back then, and people were thinking. You know, Patty's in denial. Paddy's going to have a mental breakdown eventually. And uh, I put it down to perspective. And um, like I, I am very um, reflective or introspective. I do think a lot. I've always thought a lot. But uh, weirdly enough, like I was put on this ward called St. Joseph's Ward. And the way they designed this ward is that um, the more paralyzed you are, you're down here. And the less paralyzed you are, you're up here. And I was somewhere in the middle. And I found that uh, like everyone was kind of looking down this way thinking, oh, jeez, my life's a mess. And I was kind of looking the opposite way thinking, or sorry, no, everyone was looking here, up this direction, thinking, oh, they're walking home. And I, here I am, paralyzed. And everyone was feeling depressed. And I was looking back thinking, you know, there was this guy at the end of the ward, Eddie Platt from uh, Donegal. And he was completely paralyzed on the ventilator. And I would say that guy would give his arm and leg to have what I had. So that, like, I know it's, it's kind of a cliche, like, um, you know, uh, be careful what you wish for, the grass is always greener on the other side. But I always looked down and uh, I thought, I could have been an awful lot worse. I could have been dead. Mm. And uh, the thing I learned as well during that time was um, it's not really encouraged, but um, I always say my body switched off. But you're never really encouraged to exercise your imagination. And your imagination, it's kind of like a muscle. And the more you exercise your imagination, it's like a muscle, like the more taut it becomes. So, in terms of perspective, like um, if I can use an analogy, um, like see the table beside you with the glass, right? So, can everyone see that glass there beside uh, yourself? Right? So, I'm going to ask a question, right? It's a very simple question. And this, this is the kind of uh, thought experiments I do in my head. But um, so, if I ask people, is that glass half full or half empty? What is the glass? Right. If if you think the glass is half full, raise your hand.
1: There's a few positive people. Okay.
0: If you think it's half empty, raise your hand.
1: Still, the same people raising their hands twice.
0: (laughs) But here's the thing. Like generally people are very optimistic and, and you look at the glass and like neither answer is correct. Well, both answers are kinda correct. But the real answer is the glass is always full. So to our eyes, we can see the water, but there's something else in that glass. We can't it's not tangible, we can't actually see it. But there is some matter there. Mm-hmm. Something is there. And I was thinking, okay, um, because we always focus on the positive and the happy and, and this. And, and we always think being depressed or being angry or being upset, you're kind of letting yourself down or you're a failure to yourself and your family and society. Mm. And, and the glass, and the reason I look at the glass and say the glass is always full is because like, life is, is far more complex than you know, always being positive as opposed to being negative. Like, there's the full spectrum of emotion. And in my opinion, like, that's a more balanced way of looking at life, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And um, if you can appreciate that, sometimes life gets tough for all of us. And I was kind of joking when I said it, because like, it is kind of obvious that like, we have disabilities. It's kind of obvious. But we all have struggles,
1: mm.
0: like even invisible struggles and it's easy to look at me and say, "Oh, isn't he a great lad? Uh, God love him. Inspirational." <laughs> yeah, but, but like I'm telling you, like we all have troubles. Yeah. We all have troubles. It's yeah. just that some people, you know, have better ways of hiding it. Right. And if we can appreciate that it's okay, it's completely natural to have challenges in your life. Yeah. You're not letting yourself down. Right. You'll find that like somehow there is that reserve. There's like cuz the more you feel I'm letting myself down. It's like a downward spiral. You just keep going down and suddenly you're depressed out of your head. So, yeah, yeah. perspective for me.
1: Yeah, I like that. I like that. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I love that. I love that perspective. What do you think of that, Richelle? Because your perspective is a little bit closer to, to Paddy's perhaps than, than mine. But
3: what yeah, do you think? Yeah, I suppose, as you said, about, like, What happened after and all that. Like people say to me the most difficult thing was probably, you know, the night it happened and knowing that you'll never you'll never walk again properly or you you won't be able to do this, you won't be able to do that. But for me it was actually it wasn't the year it happened because everyone was still your best friend then. You know, they were checking in on you every week, they were making sure you're all right, they were, you know, what's happening you snapping you, do you wanna come out, do you want to do this, do you want to do that? But then it was actually the year after that I found the most difficult, I suppose. I I deferred my final year of college just to kind of get myself right. And I, I've given a lot of talk since. I go into schools and stuff, and I used to always skip that part. I used to say, you know, i want going to keep it like a good story, a good comeback. I'm not going to talk about the, the hard parts in between. But I think as I've got older, I have suppose this is what actually kids want to hear. And this is what could help some of them, not because they're in the same position as me, but because of maybe something else in life that has happened or whatever. So. Yeah, I was I was the the taxi driver as a twenty one year old. I suppose I I drove everywhere. Had a mini, and it was used to be like I'll collect you. I'll go out, but I'm not drinking because I've matched the next day, or I've trained the next morning. And then suddenly, then, as the months passed, I couldn't drive. I wasn't able to drive anymore. Um, my friends were going out drinking, whatever, but they were asking me would I come, but I'd always like make a stupid excuse like my cousins are here. My dog is like something stupid, like just trying to. And then I'd be like, did I use this excuse? Make sure I tell them all the same excuse. But I actually just didn't want to put myself in an awkward situation where I might have to leave. So I suppose my uh, social anxiety a little bit, um, where I'd like to sit near the door, like even here now, I think I'd still have parts where I'd be like, right, if I need to leave, I can just go straight that way or whatever. So I think because it was a brain injury, you could get like seizures, different things like that. So I just didn't want to put myself in the situation. Um, But yeah, I moved home from college and I remember uh, like okay I need to pass the days I need to you know doctors are like you should read books and you should like you know I edu- like keep educating yourself and all that like so I educated myself by watching I'd say the entire series of Gossip Girl <laughs> four times maybe just to waste a bit of time but yeah it was definitely it was harder than I met it out to be to the people around me so I can say it now because I've said it a few times in front of my mom or whatever but you'd want to make them people feel like you're okay because like you might be okay yourself, but it doesn't mean you have to make everyone else around you feel bad. So if my friends asked me how I was, I'd say great, even though it might necessarily be great or whatever. But my mom was a teacher, so I used to get up at 8 in the morning, eat breakfast while she was there. And then I'd, she'd be like, what are you doing for the day? I'd be like, oh, I'm doing a bit of research or stupid sciencey stuff, whatever. Um, and I'd say, yeah, sure, I'll see you in the evening or whatever. So she'd go out the door, I'd look at the clock, knew right, she's in her first class now, back to bed for the entire day set my alarm for half three so it'd wake me up and I'd be downstairs sitting at the table on the laptop by the time she'd get home and like she thought I was perfectly okay that that's what I was doing all day and I think I fell into that bad cycle of show how good you are in front of everyone else like on Instagram I I was doing like a, a vlog of my recovery I wanted to be that person who had that amazing recovery like played soccer had this brain injury and came back even better um, but the more time went on, the more I realized, you know, that wasn't going to happen or whatever. But I'd still put on Instagram, like, Do you know, great day today, <laughs> whatever I ate, this, I'm such a healthy person, that sort of stuff. Like, But really, I, I wasn't doing what I was saying I was doing and that sort of thing. So, yeah, when I deferred the year of college, I probably spent too much time in myself instead of going out, socializing. And then eventually I got the all clear that I could drive again. But I was driving with uh, a left foot accelerator, so I don't have full use of my right Leg, and that actually got me that little bit of freedom. I remember I used to get my brother to come with me because I was always afraid something would happen. Uh, prior to that, I'd do Anton, Like I used to take my parents' care and just be gone at like 17, like say nothing, have it back in the morning. And now I was afraid to drive my own care. So I said, I'm going back to college and I was going to get dropped up to that loan. Like, and I was like, no, you're driving. And I like the panic. I drove up by myself. like, And that was the start of me saying, right, enough is enough. I need to, to get back in and live my life from now. So I think it just took me literally that one day, like a uh, like flick of a switch. Okay, I'm going to go back and I'm going to be a new me, basically, instead of feeling sorry for myself, which is what I think, you know, I was obviously doing. But again, it is, as you said, it's about projecting it to the people around you. I'll always say, and to this day, especially if I see kids in schools and stuff that are getting a hard time or, you know, bullying, that sort of stuff, that, you know, like, you know, do what you want to do for yourself. And it's easy to say it don't care what other people think. What you do, that's the thing. So you just need to be confident and you're enough in yourself to do what you want to do. And I think eventually I just decided, right, this is it. I'm not going to sit down for the rest of my life. I need to get up and do something. So,
1: Fantastic. Um, I think we're going to leave it there because I'm going to leave on a bit of a cliffhanger. we we'll come back with that. Uh, <laughs> so we need a little break before you escape on from the, you know, with the social anxiety, I just want to make sure <laughs> you're still here. Yep. So give us 50 minutes. We'll see you later. <laughs> have a little break. Have a coffee. Have a drink. And I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Paddy Slattery and Richelle Timothy. Please join me again for more guests and more conversations.
4: Buy a glass of red wine. I'm doing fine if you tell me why. Yeah, I'm doing okay. My new cover design. Sunny days now. We left some dreams broken on the fold. Happy and shining, like a sunny day. Happy and shining like a sunny day's now. We we'll never give up, just asking for. Happy and shining like a sunny day's now. We we'll left some dreams broken. And shining like a sunny day.